Dear congregation, I invite you to take God's Word and turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, obviously um, we'll be seeing the Gospel of John in our address this afternoon in the sermon and also uh, a phrase that comes out of Romans 10 and we'll begin reading with verses 8 and we'll read through verse 10 of Romans 10. Let us hear God's word. But what does it say? And basically here we're, Paul is speaking of uh, Israel's need for the gospel and, and how the word has come to them. And he asks, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth. And in your heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. As far as the hearing of God's word from Romans chapter 10 like to also draw our attention to the Belgic Confession, Article 1. Belgic Confession, Article 1, where it begins our confession with confessing what we believe about the one only God. We all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is one only simple and spiritual being who we call God. And that he is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, immutable, infinite, almighty, perfectly wise, just, good, and the overflowing fountain of all good. Thus far, confession regarding who is God. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we begin a series of sermons on this subject, who is God? A subject that we term theology. Theology. Then it is with great excitement that I do so, and yet it is with a lot of fear that I do so. For who can set forth the riches, the depth of who our God is? And so it's also with some fear and trepidation. And if I asked you to take out a piece of paper and write down a definition of who God is, and just give you five minutes, it would be a good practice to do right now, what would you all write? You may say, Pastor, well, you know, you're asking a a, a big question. And you're asking me to try to think about what theologians call theology, the study of God. And why don't you just leave that stuff in the seminary, the professors, the pastors, the theologians, 
That's where that belongs. Don't confront us with the reality of having to come up with an answer for who is God. But the very truth that we all need to recognize is every single one of us sitting in this sanctuary is a theologian. And every single person who has ever lived in this world has been a theologian. Every single one. This is a question that confronts every single person, and every single person will come up with a concept of who God is. It doesn't matter whether they say God does not exist, and everything come by chance and through evolutionary processes, and we are where we are just because of fate and chance. That has become their God, and their faith system, their belief. It doesn't matter if someone has a God of their own imagination and has constructed a God who they think in their own minds as to what he looks like or what he does or how he operates. But merely, they've only made a God of their own worldview, of their own imagination. Others have carved images into what they think God is or took the sun or the trees or the wind and made that their God and worshipped it rather than the Creator. Others begin to write and they might think, who is God? It's this old man with a white beard who's like a grandpa. And they've created a God of their own imagination. And throughout history, we need to recognize that every, at every juncture of history in our culture, that people have sought to deconstruct who God is so that they can fit God in their own rationale and understanding. And in doing so, they've sought to deny the very reality of who God is as the one who is transcendent, the one who is higher than all things. Even as we read in Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, for you have such your glory above the heavens, so high above us. And they want to do away with such a God who is over them. There was once a philosopher, and I can't remember his name, but he wrote a book titled The Eclipse of God. And the very title of that book teaches us what has happened in our society and throughout societies of this world since the fall. Is that yes, men in their own minds know that there is a God based on Romans chapter 1. But what has happened is, what happens with an eclipse? An eclipse of the moon goes in front of the sun, and the moon, closer to the earth, blocks out the sun, even though it's much smaller and not nearly as bright, and it, it blocks the sun. And so, in their own imaginations, they've put roadblocks in the way of, of, of who God is, eclipsing Him with their own imaginations. Instead of coming face to face with the reality of who God is, they filter out who God really is. 
But the truth of the matter is, we all need to see the glory of the reality of who our great God is. Who do you say God is? What have you written on your paper so far? Maybe you say, well, Pastor, I I just got done memorizing Belgic Confession Article 1. And maybe you memorized Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day 8. And you say, that's my definition of God, and now I know who God is. And I can spit off some kind of definition for you about who God is. He's invincible. He's invisible. He's almighty. And you could come up with all kinds of names. And you could tell me who God is. And about your knowledge of who God is. But really, as beautiful as our confessions are, And as much as the Word of God tells us about who God is, I believe the Belgic Confession acknowledges something that we need to also acknowledge, that with our heart and with our mouth, we confess God. And that's not just some kind of head knowledge, but that's a heart knowledge. That's a knowledge of Him that is personal, that is relational. Who is God? With the heart and the mouth, we confess God. First of all, we confess Him in His existence. How do we confess and know His existence? What would you say? Well, we could turn to the first pages of Scripture. In the beginning, God. God doesn't begin with Genesis 1 explaining just who He is from all eternity and telling us about how He's a spirit and how He's one and three persons and explain to us all of His attributes and then tell us the creation story. He simply says, in the beginning, God. God has always existed. And really in our way of confession, I don't know any single confession in in all of the churches that begins with explaining a philosophical rationale of who God is, but rather it simply states, in the beginning, God. I believe God. And there's something that we need to recognize. We need to recognize that it's by faith that we know God exists. And that in our knowledge of who God is, He will be incomprehensible. We won't be able to comprehend who He is, but we believe that He exists. There was once a a king of Syracuse. Uh, He asked his servant um, to, to answer this question for him. What is God? And the following day, the servant comes back to him and says, you know, I need another two days to be able to come up with an answer to this great question, what is God? And two days later, he comes back to the king and he comes, you know, I need need four more days to answer this question of 
What is God? And the king by now is saying, you know, I've already given you six days. Now, come on. Just tell me, what is God? And the servant says, the more I think about God, the more I realize I know very little about him. And that's the same for you, and it's the same for your pastor. The more I think about him, the more I realize I don't know about him. Yes, he is incomprehensible, and yet he is knowable. He is knowable in his word. And so this is what makes it very hard to, to answer an unbeliever. When he asks the question about who is God, how do you prove something to someone who, according to Romans 1, is suppressing the very knowledge of God? That's a real struggle. It's a real struggle to witness to someone who, who's not a Christian or who eclipses God with his own view of who God is. It's a struggle. And therefore, sometimes, what we call philosophical arguments or or as R.C. Sproul would call it, evidential apologetics. So in other words, yes, you can, you can kind of prove the existence of God through some sorts of philosophical arguments. It can, it can be helpful to, to persuade or to bring the Word, especially understanding how unbelievers wrestle with this great question, who is God? The first, the first philosophical argument that R.C. Sproul presents is, is, is the fact that there's an ontological argument. In other words, if we can comprehend a higher being, if we can conceive of some kind of absolute perfect being, then there must be that absolute perfect being. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to conceive of it in our own minds. It's also probably a little easier to understand is the whole causal argument that everything is caused by something and so there must be an ultimate cause for everything or maybe we could i know it's a big word but teleological argument in other words it it shows the complexity of creation and how creation functions and everything has its purpose and there's so much intelligent design in our creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, says the psalmist. And certainly it does. There is an intelligent designer and he is God. Fourthly, there could be what we call a moral argument. A person who knows deep inside themselves what is right or wrong and has a conscience, there, there must be some moral lawgiver, namely God. Or finally, and fifthly, there's a religious argument. It seems like wherever you go, whether you go to lands that have never heard about Christianity or lands that, 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 have, that have never even been had other people inhabit them, heathen lands, they are religious beings. They are worshiping something. And so, if all men by nature are religious in some way, 
there must be a religious higher being, namely God. Now, these, these arguments can help and understand why men are all theologians, ultimately all theologians, and yet we also need to recognize that God cannot be put in a test tube and be proven. He can't be rationalized and deconstructed so that we can scientifically examine who God is. We can't do that. But God exists because He says He exists, and He exists because He does exist. That's why the psalmist, as we sang from Psalm 53, but also Psalm 14, says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. There was once a minister. He entered an auditorium to speak on the subject of God. As he, as he entered and everyone knew the subject matter and what it was going to be, someone rushed forward and handed him a note and he quickly read the, opened the note and there was just one word on that note. It said, fool. minister was slightly surprised, but he addressed the crowd with these words. Something just happened which was very unusual. Someone just handed me a message which consists of only one word. Fool. I have heard of those who have written letters and forgot to sign their names, but this is the only letter I received. That someone forgot to write the letter and sign their name. And he goes on to preach. The fool said in his heart, there is no God. And I trust as I stand here before you that there's no one here that says there is no God. However, I would like to ask you a question. I would ask you if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that there is a God, and He exists. How would you know that? When you speak, do you recognize that God has given you all of these blessings? Do others recognize and hear that you acknowledge that there is a God? By your lives, do others know that you believe with your heart and you confess with your mouth that God exists? Do they? Do they know? I will guarantee that, that this will have a profound effect on your life and it will have much more profound effect on other people's lives who you come into contact than all of the philosophical arguments that you could present. Does God exist? George Whitfield was a great preacher of American Reformation. And he would go around from place to place preaching. And this little boy, one time, he was, he was wanting to go hear George Whitfield preach. His mom says, why do you like to go hear George Whitfield preach so much? And the boy said, because he speaks of a big God. 
And you could tell from his sermons that he believed with his heart and confessed with his mouth that God was real and big. He is real. He's alive. God is not dead. God is not to be eclipsed. But the eclipse is to be pulled down. So we come face to face with the reality of who God is. To know God and to know that He exists is to know it by faith. You know, dear congregation, Satan and his fallen angels, they know that God exists and they tremble. They tremble. And all men, women, boys, and girls, no matter who you are, on the great day of days when God comes, when Christ returns, and God comes to judge the heavens and the earth, every person will believe that God exists. And those who do not know Him today will cry on the mountains and the hills to fall on them and to cover them, to be hid from the face of Almighty God. So it's better that the eclipse comes down today And we come face to face with the reality of God today. Today. And I don't know a better place to do that than in his word. Yes, he reveals himself beautifully in creation. But in his word, he reveals himself fully. In his way of salvation. I don't know a better place to turn with you than the gospel of John. Or in the Gospel of John, as we read in John chapter 10, we know that Jesus is revealing himself through the I am, one of the I am statements. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. That's what it means to know God, to believe that he exists, to know him, and to be known by him. Let me take you through the Gospel of John to see that. Turn in to John chapter 1. When we turn to John chapter 1, we begin just like we begin with Genesis. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, Christ. In the beginning, His Word. And that Word is God. And that Word is revealed to us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ as that Word dwells among us in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, who is full of grace and truth. It's a revelation of who God is. It's a revelation of God, who is full of grace and truth. And as John the Baptist begins to show us who God is, he comes and he shows, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1 verse 29. And as Jesus is set forth 
And his ministry begins. There's a man in John chapter 3 named Nicodemus. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For how can one do these signs that you do unless God is with him? And he's understanding something that this is a special man and that God is with him, but he still doesn't understand that he is God himself. And Jesus reveals to him the truth that that the Son of Man must be lifted up even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, that whosoever believes in him should not have perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's what it is to know God. It's to know His life and the life that He gives you and the Spirit that He pours out upon you. Jesus tells the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4 the very same thing in the next chapter. When she's wondering whose religion is right, Some worship him in Jerusalem, others in Samaria, and some of us worship him in different ways. And Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming that you will neither worship God on this mountain nor in Jerusalem because you worship what you do not know. You see that word know there again? We know that we worship For salvation is of the Jews, but the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And then he goes on to show her that this water that she needs is that water that will well up into her in everlasting salvation, in everlasting life. That's the knowledge she needs. John chapter 5. You could keep going through this revelation of who Jesus is. As, he's, as, he's, um, as he says in verse 24, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. And they're passed from li- death unto life. That's what it means to know God. is to be alive in Him. You go on to John chapter 6 where, where we need to know Him as the bread of life. Or John chapter 10 here where we know Him as the Good Shepherd. And that we know His voice and we follow Him because He gives them eternal life. And they shall not perish. They shall not be snatched from my Father's hand. For I and my Father are one. He's telling us a lot about who God is. But I think most importantly, we come to John chapter 17. As we come and have a glimpse into the very communication within the Godhead as Christ Himself is lifting up his disciples in prayer and praying to his Father in heaven. And he prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that he may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given to him. 
And this is life eternal. Hear these words. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Don't you think we should stop a moment and think about how important this question is? Who is God? Because we need to know Him and Jesus Christ, whom He has sent, in order to have eternal life. This isn't some clinical, scientific, test tube experiment. This isn't an argument of philosophical knowledge. This is an intimate, personal knowledge of God. I'm always interested in hearing their students in confession of faith class when I ask the question, what is preaching? The preaching of God's Word. And, you know, quite frankly, we think of preaching quite often as, as giving a good address. It's got to fit a certain pattern. It's got to be laid out just so and it's got to answer various arguments, and we think about it in way of good communication. But preaching is a lot more than that. Preaching of the Word of God is when we come face to face with the realities of who God is for ourselves, to understand ourselves, and to understand who God is in order that we may experience Him and we may truly taste and see that He is good. That He is merciful. That He is just. That's what preaching really is. And if I haven't set before you who God is, I haven't done my work. You could have all kinds of facts that you remember from a sermon, all new facts, and you go home thinking, wow, it was a great sermon. I have so much more knowledge now. But you could have all kinds of knowledge without the knowledge of God. You see, the knowledge of God is far more than facts and figures. It's about an experience with God. And that's really what John is getting at. And that's what Paul is getting at when he comes to Romans chapter, chapter 10. The Word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That Word of faith which we preach. That you would confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe with your heart that God has raised Him from the dead. That you would know that indeed He has died and you have died with Him and you're going to crucify your old nature and that you're raised with Him in newness of life to live with Him and to serve Him. That confession where the heart believes unto righteousness and the mouth makes confession is made unto salvation. That's why 
Paul, when he writes to the Philippians in chapter 3, he says this in verse 8. He says, Yet indeed I also count all things loss. I count it all loss. I count everything as nothing for the excellency of the knowledge to know Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and a knowledge of Him that I might be found in Him not having my own righteousness but that I might have righteousness through faith in Christ. A righteousness that comes from God by faith. That's the knowledge that we need. And that's not something that's new to in the New Testament. That's something that was there in the day of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise men glory in his wisdom. It's not about our wisdom and it's not about how many facts we know about God. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. It's not about how much might we have. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. It's not about our riches and our blessings. But let him who glories glory in this. This is the secret. That he understands and knows me, says the Lord. That I am the Lord and I execute loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. We will never understand what this world is all about. We will never understand why certain things happen in this world. We will never even understand who we are of ourselves unless we come face to face with the very knowledge of God. And we need to realize that this existence in the very nature and the character of God as we find revealed in Scripture will always be under attack, just as it is and has been for centuries. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4, we read, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. The whole world and all of the philosophies of this world and all of the principalities and powers that are against Christ seek to eclipse the very reality of God and cover up the knowledge of God. But see, that needs to be removed, says Paul, bringing every thought into captivity of the obedience of Christ. That's what it means. And we need to know this. And we need to know this as we conclude. We need to know that all of the attempts to ever extinguish or eclipse or suppress or discredit or dilute or deny or even ignore the revelation of God as is found in His Word have all failed. It didn't matter if someone was, was the emperor of an empire. It didn't matter if there was other religions that came up against God or if philosophers came up against God or science came up against God or any other principality. All have failed. God cannot be done away with. And His Word is, 
is unto eternal life and it is everlasting. Yes, men die. Flesh perishes. It's like the grass that comes up and withers away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. The reality of God endures forever. There was once a French philosopher. His name was Voltaire. And in 1776, he made a statement saying, a hundred years from my day there will not be a Bible in the earth except the one that is looked upon by an antiquated curiosity seeker. In other words, it will be in a museum somewhere where somebody might be curious to look at it. Several years later after his death, the same house he lived in was used to store Bibles. And they were distributed throughout Europe. On the year of his death, Voltaire said these words. It took 12 men to start Christianity. And it will take one person to destroy it, which would be him. That very year, Voltaire met God. He died. Throughout history, men have come up against God. And God and His revelation have never failed. Why do I bring you this series of sermons about God? Well, dear congregation, I want you to think great thoughts of who our God is. There's no better place to start than to understand our God who is absolutely transcendent, so high above us that we can't even imagine how high above us He is. It would be better to try to comprehend infinity and eternity than it is to comprehend our God. And I don't think I can do either. And I trust you can't either. And yet, He comes so close to us in His Word to reveal Himself to us about who He is. He's imminent. I want you to think great thoughts about who God is. And I don't want there to be any eclipse of who God is. Trying to block His radiant glory. Pastor, I don't ever do that. Every single unbeliever and every single backsliding Christian even does that very thing. You block the reality of God. Dear congregation, not only do I want you to think great thoughts about who our God is and write thoughts about who our God is, but I want you to also have a peace and a contentment in God. There's a reason God comes in His Word and He says, do not be afraid, my little flock. It's because of His character. It's because He is almighty. He is everywhere present. He is all-knowing. And he is full of love and mercy. Yes, he's just and holy. But he delights in mercy. And he comes to you and he says, don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. 
I am with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. We can be content in God when we know who He is. And lastly, it will give us a great boldness and energy and zeal for God when He transforms us through the renewing of of our minds to be able to see who He is and what He desires in His people. And that will conform us to the image of Christ to live with boldness and energy and zeal for God. Do you believe with your heart? Do you confess with your mouth that he is God? And there is none else. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we introduce this subject of who you are, and we realize we stand at the brink of an ocean, an ocean that your servant Paul even had to say, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And Lord, we don't pretend to know your mind. We don't pretend to know you perfectly. But how we give you thanks that you reveal yourself to us in your word. And that the most essential thing to know is that you are a God who's alive and who lives forevermore and gives eternal life to all who are known by you and who know you. And so, Lord, give us a knowledge. Strip down those eclipses, those filters that we put up so we don't come face to face with this reality. And help us, Lord, to live and walk before the face of God in the knowledge of God and of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, day by day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.